Tuesday, the 16th of March, 2010. Australia's smartest meth dealer found in Leichhardt, ABC chairman Morris Newman branches out into staff supervision, and Sydney property developers whine because, well, they just didn't automatically get everything their own way. This is the 9pm Edict. Hello, I'm still Gary, and remember me? Welcome to the Edict. A special post-illness, I suppose I'd better try and catch up edition, which is why it's Tuesday today and not Monday. I think I might actually give up on schedules and just do this podcast when I'm damn well good and ready to. Normally I find reading the police media releases rather depressing. Two killed in car crash, man arrested at domestic violence incident and charged with firearms offences, all that sort of thing. But over the past couple of days I've been amused to see a story unfold in Sydney's inner west in the suburb known as Leichhardt. On Sunday police were investigating a house explosion. About 1.30am a two-storey house was well alight and it had suffered significant structural damage. A woman and her child in the rear of the building were thankfully unharmed. It was clear from later reports that the police suspected a clandestine meth lab had exploded. But I had to laugh when I read the police media release on Monday afternoon, the next day, this is that release in full, quote, A man has been arrested after an explosion in Sydney's inner west yesterday. A 39-year-old man who was accompanied by his solicitor attended Balmain Police Station around lunchtime today. The man was found to have a number of burns to his arms, legs and face. On citing the man's condition, detectives investigating the discovery of a potential clandestine laboratory immediately called an ambulance. The 39-year-old man has been taken to Concord Hospital for further treatment. It is understood he remains in a critical condition. Inquiries into the explosion in Hawthorne Street yesterday morning are continuing, with detectives expected to interview the man as soon as his medical condition allows. End quote. You know... You think you'd try the hospital before the police station, no? Gastroenteritis. Yes, that's what I had. That's why you haven't had this program for a few days. Gastroenteritis. Nasty, nasty gastroenteritis with large quantities of extremely runny and smelly diarrhoea. And speaking of runny and smelly diarrhoea, Sydney property developers. My attention has been drawn to a media release from the Urban Task Force, which sounds like a special commando squad or maybe an early 1990s hip-hop group, but no. The Urban Task Force is a, quote, non-profit organisation representing Australia's most prominent property developers and equity financiers, unquote. In other words, it's the people behind big housing developments and shopping malls. On Monday, they issued a media release complaining that $1.8 billion in projects has been quietly rejected, as they put it, in the last eight months. Now, the reason I knew about this was because the ABC reported it. Fairly uncritically, I must say, the ABC News report was pretty much a regurgitation of the Urban Task Force's media release with the reporter's name at the top. George Roberts is that name, and he's described as the Western Sydney reporter. Now, we shouldn't be surprised 
surprised by this regurgitation. Crikey This Week is reporting on a study by the Australian Centre for Independent Journalism at the University of Technology, Sydney. Students there examined around 2,200 stories from newspapers over one week last year and found that on average 55% of stories were at their core simply based on PR material. In other words, most of the time, what you read in the news is really just spin. There's probably very little actual journalism behind it. Sometimes I wish the news media would just own up to that, but I suppose if they did, they'd have a harder time justifying their existence in terms of uncovering the truth. But back to the Urban Task Force. Their main gripe is that these projects worth $1.8 billion could have been approved by the New South Wales State Government but weren't. Instead, it'll be up to local councils whether they're approved or not. The thing is, though, Planning approvals is what local councils do, along with collecting the garbage, keeping the streets in good order, and a bunch of other rather unglamorous stuff like health inspections at restaurants. Whatever you think of local government, planning approvals is their job. Now, over the years, big property developers have been unhappy when local councils reject their oh-so-wonderful plans, usually because, well, the people who actually live in the local area and who have a say don't want the developments. That's called democracy in action. So, under pressure and perhaps some cash-based persuasion from the property developers, their big donors to the political parties, you see, the state government created what's called the Part 3A scheme. This scheme means that any project worth more than $50 million and deemed to be of state or regional significance can be fast-tracked, considered by some team of experts at the state's Department of Planning and completely overriding local government. What the Urban Task Force is complaining about is that their projects that could have been eligible for a Part 3 override didn't get the green light. That is, for whatever reason, they were handed back to the local councils to deal with just as would happen if you or I wanted to renovate a house or build a block of apartments on some vacant land. Well, didums. Dear Urban Task Force, you don't have the right to have your projects automatically approved by the state government just because they're big. The state government can decide that these decisions are in fact best left to be decided locally by the people who it'll actually affect. And you can sulk all you want about decisions behind closed doors and that it's political, well, because of course it's political. As if what you're doing by issuing your media release isn't political as well. Now, a Mr. Aaron Gardiel is the CEO of the Urban Task Force. He reckons this is politics, yes. Quote, It seems the political controversy has had an impact, with government more reluctant to accept new projects into the Part A system. End quote. Indeed, the government has lifted the limit for a Part 3A project from 50 million to 100 million, and there's a reason for that. The voters reckon there's too many links between property developers and the government. Sheesh, there's even been an episode of Four Corners about this. And that's the ABC's current affairs program. So it's no wonder the government wants to look a little less like it's in the developer's back pocket. But wait a minute. Aaron Gadiel accusing the government of being political about this? Just who is this Aaron Gadiel? Well, let's do a bit of digging. It only takes a moment. Arian Gadiel used to be the chief of staff to both Eddie Abid and Joe Trabodi. They're two members of parliament from the right wing of the New South Wales Labour Party who are amongst those most closely linked to property developers. Google those names, Eddie Obeid and Joe Trapodi, and you'll find a plethora of stories about controversial property developments, and chances are the story will put two words next to their names, power broker. 
Aaron Gadiel's sister-in-law is Tanya Gadiel, the Labour MP for Parramatta. Her husband is Michael Gadiel, who later became the Assistant Secretary of the Labour Council of New South Wales. So there's nothing like keeping it in the family, eh? And despite the current New South Wales Premier KKK, that's Christina Keneally, protesting that she's nobody's puppet, let's look at her rather brief political biography. Her husband, Ben, is a friend of none other than Joe Tripodi. She was a local councillor in Ashfield in Sydney's inner west. I think it was Ashfield. It may have been Strathfield. The information has been deleted from Wikipedia through some magic. And a real estate agent. She was involved in accusations of corrupt dealing, of which she was cleared, so that's okay. But what was her next job? Well, apparently, wait for it, Christina Keneally's next job was working for Eddie Obeid. Now, I can't confirm that because, as I say, some folks have been cleaning up Ms Keneally's Wikipedia entry. But what I can confirm is that in news reports, she has certainly described both Tripodi and Obeid as her mentors. So back to the Urban Task Force, remember them? What we have is, essentially, Aaron Gadiel whinging that his mates in government haven't given his other mates in the property development industry an automatic free pass for their major property developments, but that they'll have to get local approval just like everyone else. Gee, sense of entitlement much? And of course what he doesn't get when he whinges that all these jobs won't happen because their special projects won't automatically go ahead is that there still will be new homes built and new apartments and they'll still require builders and carpenters and electricians and all the rest. It's just that his mob won't get to cream their cut off the top. Do you think I care, Mr Gadiel? Do you think the voters care? I don't think so. I think they'll actually be very happy to have you and your mob well out of the loop. chairman of the Australian Broadcasting Corporation wandered into a controversy of his own making last week. Morris Newman gave a speech to staff and, amongst other things, decided to buy into the debate over climate change. Now, I've already written about this at length on my website. You can read it later. In brief, though, I think it's wrong for the chair of the ABC to speak publicly about editorial issues. The managing director, Mark Scott, is the editor-in-chief, and it's his job to supervise staff. Newman has enough problems with the blatantly political nature of his appointment. He's a close personal friend of former Prime Minister John Howard, who is, of course, a noted climate change sceptic. And Newman has no previous media experience. He should just butt out and concentrate on corporate governance issues. But what I wanted to mention is the way the ABC focused on the climate change aspect of Newman's speech. Here's a snippet of Newman being interviewed on the current affairs program PM. Do you think the ABC has been too quick to accept the conventional wisdom that climate change is a fact of life, that it's happening, according to eminent scientists? I think the ABC has probably uh, been more balanced than most in the mainstream media, I think that uh, we've we've listened to the words of sceptics as as well as those who uh, are scientists in the field. But uh, climate change is at the moment uh, an, an emotional issue, but it really is the fundamental issue about the need to bring voices that uh, have authority and are relevant to the particular issue to the attention of our audiences, so that they themselves can make decisions so that 
we are seen to trust and respect them sufficiently that they can make up their own minds about the various points of view that are being expressed through the medium of the ABC. So should the ABC be trying harder to seek out people in authority who deny climate change? Climate change was only a part of the... Uh, uh, one of four examples which I gave. I think we but should... It's the be... hottest topic around at the moment, which is why I'm singling it out. Yeah, but I think the point is that uh, hopefully what I was saying in my speech is good for all seasons. Do you have your own particular view on this? Is there, is there some doubt in your mind about climate change? My view on uh, any of these topics is to keep an open mind, and I still have an open mind on climate change, I have an open mind on a whole range of issues, because I think that uh, to have a closed mind leaves you in a position where uh, if you take a strong stance, you are likely to be wrong-footed. And I've just made the point that uh, I've been around long enough to know that consensus and conventional wisdom doesn't always serve you well and that unless you leave some room for an alternative point of view, you are likely to uh, go down a wrong track. I think Newman was still wrong to speak about editorial issues. I also think he's wrong about climate change, but that's neither here nor there. He's entitled to his opinion as a private citizen. But he shouldn't be using his position as ABC chair to lecture staff. But what I'm rather unimpressed with is PM taking the comment out of context. Newman actually did have a valid point, and that is that we have been caught in the past just assuming that the experts are right. And in his speech, he specifically referred to the lead-up to the global financial crisis. While the climate change issue is important and certainly presses a lot of red buttons, as uh, shown by the number of comments both on my piece on my website and on uh, an equivalent one over at Crikey, that really wasn't Newman's point. So the ABC... Eh, you fail. Now, Marcus Westbury, creator of the Renew Newcastle project and festival director and TV maker and person involved in stuff. I caught his column for The Age this week. The Age is a newspaper in Melbourne, for those of you not in Australia. Why don't people laugh in art galleries? Marcus asks, why? Do we mistake art galleries for libraries? You need to be silent in a library so other people can concentrate on long, wordy passages. There's a place for quiet contemplation in art, he says, but it is one of many places. I'd like to think, that is, Marcus would like to think, that there's equally a place for loud conversation, robust debate and animated piss-taking. Any of these could be at least as effective as monk-like concentration when it comes to engaging with and understanding what's up on the walls. He continues, much the same could be said for the performing arts. Shakespeare's plays benefited a lot from the robust environment in which they were originally presented. The immediate feedback from a loud, loutish and opinionated audience is far more effective in correcting the inevitable weak spots in a work than polite silence followed by the occasional scathing review. I'm sure there's data somewhere that will show that the decline in theatre as a major cultural force directly corresponds with the improving behaviour of its audiences. Now, Marcus proposes tumultuous Tuesdays and wild Wednesdays down at the National Gallery of Victoria. Mad matinees, even. I agree, Marcus. One of the finest compliments ever paid to me was by someone who said that they liked going to concerts with me because I laughed during Mozart's funny bits. So I think 
that calls for an edict. This is edict number five. If you are in an art gallery, or a concert hall, or an opera house, or any other place where art is inflicted upon the public, and something should amuse you, you shall laugh. And the more amusing the thing, the louder and more heartily shall you laugh. Moreover, if anyone, anyone at all, should look askance at you, or frown at your mirth, then you shall have the inalienable right to tell them to go fuck themselves, after which you may summon the management of the venue, and have these people stripped naked, evicted, and pissed upon by itinerant dogs, for they are unworthy of art. Well, that's all for the edict tonight. If you'd like to leave a comment, either Skype to Stilgarian, spelling on the website, or phone Sydney plus six one two eight zero double one three seven double three. No one left a comment this week. I'm sulking. The next episode will be on Thursday, the eighteenth of March, sometime around nine p.m. Because this is the nine p.m. edict. Mm-hmm.